2: This is the Area Nine Four One Radio Wolinsky podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wolinsky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The novelist and short story writer W. P. Kinsella died on September sixteenth, twenty sixteen, 2016, at the age of eighty-one, after a career writing short stories. He published his first novel, Shoeless Joe, in 1982, a fantasy about a man who kidnaps the reclusive writer J.D. Salinger and builds a baseball field in Iowa. The book became a cult bestseller. His second novel, published in 1986, the Iowa Baseball Confederacy, continued his blending of baseball and fantasy. And it was after that, on April 19, 1988, that Richard Lupoff and I had a chance to sit down with W.P. Kinsella in his room at the French Hotel in Berkeley and discuss his life, his career, his love of baseball, and the forthcoming film of Shoeless Joe,
3: which was later retitled and became the classic, Field of Dreams. What drew me to W.P. Kinsella is that he writes baseball fantasies. Nobody else is doing that.
1: That's true. I started writing about baseball by accident, but I discovered that I had an audience after Shoeless Joe came out, and when you discover a voice that readers will relate to, you stick to it. So I'm going to write baseball fiction as long as people want to read it.
0: I'd like to back you up before we get into Shoeless Joe and later works.
1: You became known
0: to the world, mainly by Shoeless Joe, but you were around for quite a while before that doing other kinds of fiction. Would you talk about that a little, please?
1: Well, I'd been beating my head against the walls of North American literature for 25 years, I suppose, and Shoeless Joe was my fifth book. I had four collections of stories before that. A few years before that, I... uh, started writing stories from the point of view of an 18-year-old Indian boy, uh, some serious, some comic stories, and I had, my first book was published in 1977, that was Dance Me Outside, a collection of 18 of those stories, followed by Scars, which was another uh, 16 or 17 stories, and then I had a a collection of non, what I have to classify as non-Indian, non-baseball stories, called Shoeless Joe Jackson Comes to Iowa, in which the first chapter of Shoeless Joe was the title story in the collection and uh, some of those were quite fantastical. There's a story about Janice Joplin and uh, another story about a man who ends up uh, on a uh, as a, a sculpture on a Grecian urn and uh, a woman who grows roots in a cornfield and several other strange things there and then I had one more collection of Indian stories called Born Indian before Shoeless Joe came along.
3: Had these been published elsewhere?
1: Well, most of them were published in magazines and then collected in uh, books.
3: Well, all these fantasy stories, that they kind of were published as mainstream. Uh, who published them?
1: Oh, goodness. The uh, Janice Joplin story was published by a magazine called Descant in Canada, and the Malahat Review published a story called Fiona the First, which is about a fellow who uh, spends all his time uh, in train stations and airports picking up girls. Mostly the small literary magazines.
0: Your publishers were also what you would call small literary publishers, is that correct?
1: Yes, my first four books is with a small publisher in Canada called Oberon. Uh, After that, uh, I've had Houghton Mifflin and uh, Penguin and uh, Collins as my Canadian publisher now.
0: How did you get to Houghton Mifflin?
1: I wrote the uh, first chapter of Shoeless Joe was a short story in itself and it was published in an anthology and a young editor at Houghton Mifflin uh, read not the story, but a two-line mention of my story in a review of the anthology in Publishers Weekly. And on the strength of that, he wrote to me and said, this is, uh, sounds like such a wonderful idea, this man building a baseball diamond in his cornfield, that if it's a novel, we want to see it, and if it isn't, it should be. So I wrote back to him and said, Well, I've never written anything successful longer than 25 pages, though I'm a well-known short fiction writer in Canada. But if I had a good editor, I'd be willing to attempt a novel. And He was right out of editor school, so he didn't know that editors don't really want to be bothered working with writers. They want the finished product to come across their desk. So... At the point that I got his letter, I started thinking novel, and uh, he wrote back and said, Well, I've tracked down this anthology and I've read your story and I absolutely love it, and I took it to the head people at Houghton Mifflin, and they love it too, so we'd uh, like to see this turned into a novel. And I had started thinking novel, and I knew that I was going to write something about J.D. Salinger because he has made himself interesting by trying to hide. I wanted to write something about Moonlight Graham, who had uh, spent uh, an instant as a Major League Baseball player, and I wanted to write something something about the, the character Eddie Sissons, about an old man who accosted me on the streets in Iowa City one day and turned out to be a sports impostor. So I thought, well, I'll figure some way to use all these characters in the novel and I went back and read everything that Salinger had written and discovered that he had used two characters with my name in his fiction there was a there was a Ray Kinsella was a character in an uncollected story called A uh, Young Girl in 1941 with no waste at all that appeared in Mademoiselle in 1948 I think and uh, there's a character named Richard Kinsella in Catcher in the Rye and Kinsella is a very uncommon name and for him to have two of them turn up uh, I thought there is the connection. I will simply name the first, uh, the narrator of this story, Ray Kinsella, and that will give him a reason to go off and uh, kidnap J.D. Salinger and take him to a baseball game. So that that was how uh, that all came about. I want to
0: stop you at this point, though. You told a story about your editor at Houghton Mifflin, a wonderful
1: unsung hero. What's his name? His name is Larry Kessenick. He's uh, from Milwaukee, and uh, is a very good editor, and I might still be Uh, teaching bonehead English in Calgary if he hadn't written to me. Have you ever had any direct contact with Salinger? Houghton Mifflin got a uh, grumbling letter from Salinger's lawyers uh, uh, saying that he was outraged and offended to be portrayed in my novel and that they would be very unhappy uh, if it were transferred to other media. They didn't say they'd do anything, they just said they'd be unhappy. We had checked this out very carefully with the uh, Houghton Mifflin libel lawyers before publication and uh, they said essentially look the only thing that he can sue us for is about the sixth definition of libel which is called false light. And in order to do that, he'd have to go to court and say, look, I've been portrayed in this novel as a kindly, loving, humorous individual, and I'm really not like that at all. (laughs) So uh, you've portrayed me in a false light because you've made me nice. So they uh, uh, said it was unlikely that he would do that. And the uh, movie people have chosen not to use him as a character in the movie. Uh, I think more uh, for the fact that the movie-going public is generally aged 15 to 24, most of whom probably wouldn't know J.D. Salinger from a hole in the ground anyway uh... people who have read the novel will know what is intended and the rest won't care one way or another and they have done a wonderful movie script They uh, they rewrote the Salinger part for a writer who was to the sixties what Salinger was to the fifties and they made the writer whose name in the script is Terence Mann uh, large and black and cantankerous and wrote the part for James Earl Jones and they've managed to get James Earl Jones and Kevin Costner will play Ray, and uh, I've seen the script, and it's wonderful, and uh, they have every opportunity of making a really good movie out of it.
0: When you mentioned Terrence Mann and described him, I immediately flashed on Ishmael Reed, a local writer and friend of ours. Did, did you have him in mind, or do you think they did?
1: I have no idea. I th- I think they had James Earl Jones in mind. Okay. Did you always have some kind of obsession with shoeless Joe Jackson? Well... I didn't do any baseball writing until 1978 when I wrote the short story. Uh, I had uh, written a, a story called Diamond Doom when I was in seventh grade, I think, and won a prize for it or something, but it got lost along the way. And uh, My dad was a great storyteller and a baseball fan, and he, he was an American from uh, North Dakota who came to Canada late in life and settled down in Alberta for whatever reason. And he had traveled around the U.S. a great deal after the First World War, had pay, played some semi-pro ball, claimed to have been in Chicago at the time of the Black Sox scandal, and talked a good game, had told a lot of stories about how Joe Jackson ended up playing for a dollar a game in the textile leagues in Carolina. And. Uh, sort of died broke kind of thing, which wasn't true, of course. Uh, Joe had a wife who was very financially astute and uh, ended up owning some liquor stores in Greenville and didn't suffer financially at all. But I got to thinking I was living in Iowa in 1978 and got to thinking uh, about these stories and thought, what would happen if Joe Jackson came back to life in this time and place? And that was how the first chapter of Shoeless Joe came about, and it just went on from there.
0: Considering that uh, a lot of our listeners are younger folks who may not know too much about the Black Sox scandal, could you give us a brief reprise of that?
1: The players in uh, a lot of ways were justified. What it, what it uh, involved was the 1919 White Sox were American League champions, and they arranged to throw the World Series to Cincinnati, who were a much weaker team. There were eight players involved altogether. Um, several of them were indeed involved, Eddie Cicotte and... Uh, William, Claude Williams, and Sweet Risberg, and Chick Gandel. Jackson was only peripherally involved, as were some of the other players. It it came about uh, because of Chief Charlie Comiskey, uh, the owner of the White Sox. If he had been fair with his players, there never would have been a Black Sox scandal. In uh, 1917, he promised Eddie Ciccati a $10,000 bonus if he won 30 games. And Sakati got his 28th win uh, early in September, and uh, the word came down from Comiskey to Pants Rowland, the manager benched this guy. They benched him until the last day of the season when they let him win his 29th game. <laughs> so they didn't have to pay him his $10,000 bonus. So the next season, Eddie Ciccati said, I'm going to get my 10 grand come hell or high water. And uh, he uh, organized the uh, the throwing of the series. So they got some money from gamblers. I, I don't think any of them ever got 10,000. I don't think even Ciccati got more than 5,000, but they did get a, a little money. And, the, and uh, several of the players did their best to throw the series, but Joe Jackson didn't. He was the leading hitter in in the series uh, didn't make any errors in the field uh, although he certainly knew about the conspiracy he was forced to take some money because swede wrisberg was a real tough son of a gun he sort of threatened to annihilate jackson if he didn't go along with them
0: is the legend of say it ain't so joe is that true
1: that's questionable. Uh, the, uh, there's a more colorful version of that story, which I probably can't tell on the air. But uh, go ahead. We'll it out. <laughs> the uh, the uh, the story is that two little uh, boys, ten or twelve years old, were sort of running along beside Jackson when he came out of the courthouse, and one said to the uh, said to the other, "See, I told you the big son of a bitch wore shoes." There's some question as to whether that actually happened. It's more likely that it was an invention of, uh, of sports writers.
3: When Shoeless Joe came out, were you surprised at the reaction to it?
1: Well, I wasn't exactly surprised. I knew it was good. I, uh, I'm a pretty fair judge of my own work, and Anne's folks lived in Northern California at that time, and we drove up there, and I, I took Anne out to the Black Butte Dam in Northern California, and we sat, and I read her the second section of Shoeless Joe, and I knew as I was reading it that it was really good. So I, I wasn't uh, surprised that it got a good uh, reaction. I uh, I suppose ultimately I was a little surprised at its uh, success because it sold out its hardcover printing and has done really well and continues to do really well. There are uh, It came along at the right time because there are now sports literature courses in uh, virtually all colleges uh, and this is something that's just come within the last five or six years and so Shoeless Joe is taught in all of these courses I think and uh, and I've had thousands and thousands of fan letters from people who were who were touched by this. It really it really touched a lot of people, the father-son material particularly.
0: There are a couple more questions that may revert back to shula's Joe, but I would like to move on a little bit to the Iowa baseball confederacy. Um, is, is this in any way a sequel or, or what? How do they fit?
1: Well at the moment there's no real connection between them. I have an idea for a novel that would tie Shoeless Joe, the Iowa Baseball Confederacy, and the third novel together as a trilogy. You now, whether I'm ever going to get that written, I don't know. I uh, I have some good ideas, and I have a lot of blank material, blank space, but uh, no, at the moment, the only connection is that they are both set in the same general area in and around Iowa City, Iowa.
0: It seems to me, again,
1: there is a, as, as Richie
0: was mentioning earlier, a very strong element of fantasy in, in these books. The Iowa Baseball Confederacy is... Uh, a sort of a time travel novel, among other things. Uh, it involves a 2,000-inning baseball game, which is maybe more fantastic than time travel. What I would like you to do is you know, talk about fantasy and your feelings about it. Also, whether you were a fantasy reader prior to your own creation of these fantasies.
1: About the uh, only fantasy that I have read is Ray Bradbury. I was... Uh, Bradbury's books came along in the mid-fifties, uh, The Illustrated Man, The Golden Apples of the Sun, The Martian Chronicles, and they certainly influenced my work, as did uh, Richard Brodigan's uh, work. I, uh, was, I'm a great Brodigan fan. Uh, if I could only own one book, I suppose it would be in Watermelon Sugar uh, by uh, Brodigan. So his, uh, the, these people were both uh, writers who were uh, the best at creating simile and metaphor, and I think I learned a lot uh, from them. Uh, I've not been a great fantasy reader at all. Um, in fact, I didn't even discover Gabriel Garcia Marquez until just uh, two or three years ago. I'd been told for years and years that I was writing like the South Americans, and I thought, well, I finally I should read one of these people, and uh, I read A Hundred Years of Solitude, and uh, and discovered that I was indeed writing <laughs> <laughs> quite a bit like Marquez, but. Uh, have not read any of the others. I, I tried a couple of them, but I I found them too convoluted. I don't like to have to work when I read fiction. Fiction is storytelling, and it shouldn't be like reading a dictionary or a, or a small print textbook, as a lot of fiction is.
0: Would you continue that theme and talk a little bit about your own methodology as a writer?
1: Well, I, I simply try to, uh, to get situations where I can reverse expectations, I suppose. Uh, that helps a lot when you're writing in magic realism or fantasy or whatever it may be called. I'm a very disciplined writer. I try and work two days on and one day off forever and uh, try to complete four pages a day on the days that I work or an amount of revision that would equal four pages of new material. If I work 10 months a year that comes out to about 800 pages which is essentially two finished books. So uh, that's what I try to do, and I, I've been able to stick pretty close to it. I, I'm getting way behind while I'm on this tour, but I will uh, i hope I can catch up. I'm, I'm two books ahead now. I have a new novel sitting with my agent and another collection of Indian stories that have been sitting there for a couple of years now because we don't want to glut the market with them. That's, so I, uh, I turn out a lot of work. Ideas just simply come from, I, I read newspapers uh, very thoroughly, you know, sort of looking for a line or an image or something that will trigger a story. And It's hard to say where ideas come from. You just latch on to something. I have a whole folder of ideas. I get through one project and I look through it and something may have been in the file for 10 years and then I say, well, gee, I think I know how to handle this now.
0: Do you outline extensively or do you revise
1: very much? Uh, neither. I I don't. I never outline anything. I'm very lazy, which comes from the days when I had to use the typewriter. I have a word processor now, but uh, I always write a first draft in longhand and then uh, would revise it uh, onto the typewriter and would think very carefully before I typed anything so that that might be the finished product or it might be uh, that someone else... I wouldn't change it anymore so that someone else could type the final version. I try to get a a starting point or a finishing point for a story. If I have a good close, that's the best. If I can write the closing of a story, then anybody can write a story to go with it, if you have a real good climax. So I try to get a good opening, and then no more than three pages into a story, I want to know how it ends, and then I write the ending, and then uh, there's going to be somewhere between five and 25 pages in between, and uh, uh, that's uh, just journeyman work, then, once you've got a good ending and a good... uh, and a good beginning then you just lead up to it is that how you wrote valley of the schmoon i heard you read that the other night
0: in dialogue i thought it was just an amazing performance you could do stand-up if you couldn't write
1: well thank you that's actually been done on stage i uh, i adapted that story for the stage along with the thrill of the grass and the night Manny mota tied the record and they uh, opened in vancouver about two weeks ago as an evening of one act plays i wanted to do something about an old timer hazing a rookie, and I didn't know just uh, just how to do it, uh, and just kept him talking. I, I thought of the old uh, Robert Browning monologues, you know, Andrea del Sarto, and those kind of things, where the one person uh, is essentially telling you a story, but you learn more about them than you uh, do about anyone else uh, while they're uh, while they're supposedly telling you something else. And that was what I did with that. I slowly build it up so the reader would, would think that we've got a crazy old ball player on our hands and then at the end they find out that he's not nearly as crazy as he's been pretending to be
0: you did several things in that story that intrigued me in particular a mixture of, of icons obviously the whole notion of baseball is a gigantic american pantheon of its sorts but you also mixed in a lot of comic strip icons little abner joe palooka little orphan annie pogo and so forth and John Wayne, who's another American icon, and then a favorite of mine that I thought I was the only fan he had
1: in the world, Snuffy Sternweiss. What are you doing there? How how does this stew happen? Goodness, I don't know. I just started that old player talking. I looked for—I looked for a voice. Uh, Voice in in fiction writing, voice is everything. You need a—that's the the main problem with fiction. Uh, All the unpublished material that comes into classes, and uh, a great deal of what is published. Uh, The problem with it is that it could be written by any of a half million people. It has nothing unique about it, and that I always look for a voice to tell my stories and hopefully it is a strong voice and I just uh, I thought right, we've got this old ball player and he's driving cross country and he's talking so I just uh, let it tried to find the kind of voice that he would talk in and then what would he talk about and uh, let him make as many points as he as he wanted to and that that was where that came from and I just recalled all things I did a I once did a uh, sociology uh a long sociology paper on comic strips and how they had changed over the years and that so i worked a little bit of that into the uh, end of the story and uh, i remembered the story of snuffy Sternwise that i thought this guy would be about snuffy's age and had played at the same time and i remembered the story of of snuffy being killed on the amtrak and thought i would work that in too
3: you were born and raised in canada how come you're a baseball fan
1: well, my dad, as I said, was a good storyteller, and uh, on, the, on the rare occasions when he would get away from the farm and into the city, he'd always come back with a copy of the St. Louis Sporting News, and uh, I knew how to read box scores before I ever saw a game, and uh, I've always been a fan. We had, when we did move to the city, they had some fairly good minor league ball there, and I used to watch that, and then eventually I got to the point where I could travel around and see some major league games occasionally, and uh, I've just always... From the first time I saw a game I've been a fan and that's all there is to it.
3: What is the favorite Major League team of W.P. Kinsella, author of Shoeless Joe?
1: Well, I don't really have a favorite team. I have varied from year to year uh, and owning a uh, rotisserie league team takes away all possibilities of being a fan because uh, when If your star player is owned by somebody else, well, you you pull against that uh, player, and if a pitcher you own is pitching against the home team, you're pulling for them. We're Seattle fans by proximity because we live right on the U.S. border about 90 miles north of Seattle, so we travel there uh, frequently and see the Mariners, but uh, they're not a very good baseball team they're, they're sort of uh, sympathetic they're like owning a sick pet you uh, <laughs> you don't get you don't get too mean with your uh, pet when it throws up on the rug because it's sick you know and that's sort of the way the fans feel about the mariners we go out to watch the other team play most of the time just to get to see the to get to see the good players
0: i used to feel that way about the athletics toward the end of the charlie finley era you go out there with the other 311 diehards Say, well, try at least.
1: (laughs) They had a 14 year old boy broadcasting the games, didn't they, in those days?
0: They were carried on the local college station, yeah, so a a mild exaggeration, basically (laughs) true.
3: There have been a number of baseball novels written, uh, including Bang the Drum Slowly, The Natural, It Happens Every Spring, Rhubarb. Have you read them? Have you been interested in reading them?
1: I've read some. Uh, I keep up with current fiction. I read about a hundred books a year of current uh, mainstream fiction. Uh, um, the Celebrant is the novel that I like. I think that is the best baseball novel uh, ever done. I never liked The Natural very much. I, I thought the movie was 100% better than the book. Um, I've seen Bang the Drum slowly. I haven't read it. I thought the, uh, the Coover novel uh, the Universal Baseball Association, right, yeah. J. Henry Waugh, proprietor, is is quite good. But uh, I think the, uh, the Celebrant is the best baseball novel. But th- there hasn't been a lot of good baseball fiction written. I don't know The Celebrant. Who wrote that? Uh, it's written by Eric Rolf Greenberg, and uh, it's out with Penguin Sports Series of, oh, about three years ago. Um, there's a wonderful little book out this year uh, called A Flatland Fable by Joe Coomer published with McGraw-Hill in paper, and it's not touted as a baseball book, but it is, and it's a, a wonderful little book.
3: What about Philip Roth's The Great American Novel?
1: I couldn't even get through that. I uh, I find it too strange. Uh, when I was writing the Iowa Baseball Confederacy, I read the first 50 pages to someone, and they said, oh, they said, uh, Roth's already done that. And I said, oh, God, so I, I went running out and bought a copy of it and read 100 or so pages, and uh, and said, "No, he has. I'm not doing what he did. Uh, thank goodness. But I, I just couldn't get into it at all."
0: I think we're about wrapping up, but I would like to ask, as much as you feel like revealing. You say you've completed another novel. Are you feeling very constrained about talking about that, or are you willing to tell us a little? No,
1: not at all. I'll give you the first paragraph if you oh, please do. <laughs> if you want it, uh, it's. Uh, the Baseball Holds It Together. Uh, it's about a, a young boy almost getting a tryout with the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, it's set in Alberta in 1945. I always wanted to write something about growing up in a really isolated area in uh, in Canada, uh, but when I came to write this I, I found a voice I thought I could use and when I came to write it I found that nothing interesting ever happened to me. Uh, so I, uh, everything except the place names uh, is fiction, but I, I think it's a pretty good novel. My agent loves it and uh, it'll be two years down the line or so. It's called Box Socials and uh, they, it begins, uh, this is the story how truckbox box Al McClintock almost got a tryout with the genuine St. Louis Cardinals and the National Baseball League, but instead ended up batting against Bob Feller of Cleveland Indian fame in Renfrew Park down on the river flats in Edmonton, Alberta, summer of 1945 or 46. No one can remember which. On one final note,
3: who's going to win the World Series in 1988?
1: If the Mets don't suffer a lot of injuries, uh, which I wouldn't mind seeing happen, the the Mets all the way, uh, nobody can touch them, unfortunately.
2: The film Schuler's show was, of course, renamed Field of Dreams by a studio executive before its release, though there's a story that the original title of the book was The Dream Field, and it was changed by the publisher. In any case, Field of Dreams went on to be dominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and contained the final performance of Burt Lancaster. Over the years, W.P. Kinsella continued to write. His book, Box Socials, was published in 1991 and was followed by four later novels. The last, Butterfly Winter, came out in 2011. Along the way, he also published several short story collections and a book of poetry. The Seattle Mariners would not get to the postseason until 2000, and they have yet to get to the World Series. And the 1988 World Series did not include the New York Mets, who did have the best record in the National League, but who lost in the National League Conference Playoff Series to the Dodgers, who then beat the heavily favored Oakland Athletics five games to one. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.